everyone. Shalom and welcome. My name is Miriam Anzevin, and I'm the co-host of the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. Thank you for joining us today. The coronavirus has triggered an unprecedented wave of changes to day-to-day life in greater Boston and beyond. But existing in a state of crisis is nothing new to the Jewish people. History can be our guide during difficult times. What does the past tell us about how we will emerge from the era of COVID-19? How might Jewish life, including how we gather and how we learn, change after this extended period of radical social distancing and economic turmoil? Jewish Boston and Combined Jewish Philanthropies are pleased to present this timely conversation, which features two experts, Dr. Jonathan Sarna, a historian who can provide us with the context of the time we're in, and Rabbi Mark Baker, the head of a large Jewish organization at the forefront of responding to a community in crisis. Dr. Sarna is the Joseph H. and Bell R. Braun Professor of American Jewish History in the Department of Near Eastern and Judaic Studies at Brandeis University. He is a renowned scholar and author, and quite literally wrote the book, actually more than a few books, on American Jewish history, including American Judaism and Jews of Boston. Rabbi Baker is president and CEO of Combined Jewish Philanthropies, a position he's held since 2018. Previously, he was the head of Gann Academy for 11 years. We'll leave time for questions from our audience at the end. Please submit them during the conversation using the Q&A button, and if you'd like, include your first name and hometown. You can find the entire conversation as an upcoming episode of the Vibe of the Tribe podcast, which you can find and share at jewishboston.com podcast. Let's get started. Welcome Dr. Sarna and Rabbi Baker. Thanks, Miriam. Welcome, Jonathan Sarna. It's so great to be here with you. Well, it's really a joy to be uh, here and uh, wonderful to be able to talk relevant history. So I wanted to just frame this conversation with you before I start to ask you a few questions. Um, and again, reminding everyone, if you have questions during this conversation, you can send them in uh, and we'll try to leave time at the end for them. But I want to give a shout out to my friend and colleague and one of your uh, doctoral students, Jonathan Golden with whom I taught for many years at Gann Academy, who inspired me to reach out to you about this because he uh, he sent me an excerpt from your book, Jews of Boston, and with a little note that said, lo and behold, 125 years ago, uh, in the midst of different kinds of challenges and different kinds of crises, the very first federated charities in the country was born, and that was CJP, before it was named CJP. And uh, Jonathan was reminding me of something that I believe is at least attributed to Mark Wayne, but that he has quoted often, which is, you know, history may not exactly repeat itself, but it often does rhyme. And then I thought about Passover and realized that, you know, we know this is what we do as Jews. We retell our story over and over again, behold or vador in every generation. We have to see ourselves as if we're going out of Egypt, both to connect to our history, but also to learn from it and to ask ourselves, what is our story trying to teach us this year? And that, for me, inspires this conversation with you. I think we're living in a moment right now where people are hungry to connect with one another and I think looking for content, um, not only to learn, not only to deepen their knowledge, but to actually to make meaning of this moment. And you as a historian, I think, are uniquely positioned not only to help us understand the context in which we're living and the world from which we come, but to help us actually interpret 
the world in which we're living through the lens of our history. And lastly, I would say clearly, as we think about our history and what it has to say about this moment, we know that we are going to be faced with choices as individuals and as a community, and that the choices we make now will write the history um, of the future. So I'd love to talk with you a little bit today about uh, the world from which we come and what we can learn from it and what you think that says about the moment we're in. So let's just get to it. Let me start by asking you, you know, you're a, you're a student of American Jewish history. Uh, give us a little bit of walk through American Jewish history with kind of key parallels that you think uh, we might learn from in today's situation. Well, I think the first thing to remember is that for American Jews living a century ago, plagues were something that they expected every decade or two. There uh, had been smallpox epidemics and yellow fever and cholera uh, and others, and they knew exactly what a plague was. That, I think, is why in 1918, the time of the great flu epidemic, uh, people were not astonished by an epidemic. They'd experienced these things before. While we have had 20th century plagues, older Jews, even in Boston, remember polio epidemics and the AIDS epidemic. Both of them are different uh, than what we are experiencing now. And for most Boston Jews, for most Americans, for that matter, the idea of um, sheltering in place the idea that uh, everything is canceled and so on is uh, is very new. I was looking at the um, uh, autobiography of, of one of the great um, American rabbis of yesteryear, Maurice Eisendrack. He was, uh, for a time, the head of the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, forerunner Union Reform Judaism. And he says, kind of matter-of-factly, that he went off to rabbinical school, and it was 1918, and soon after he got there, they sent everybody home because of the flu epidemic. And so he went back home, and by the time he got there, his father had the flu and tragically passed away. Uh, so it was something that they knew about. The 1918 flu epidemic really killed unimaginable numbers of Americans. Today, we we usually give a number of about 675,000 Americans. This in a, an America's population was about a third of what it is today. Those deaths came close together. And during the height of the epidemic, which came somewhat after the Jewish holidays in 1918, people were dying all the time. And uh, it was calamitous, really, uh, for the Jewish uh, community. I had a, a student who um, found uh, family diaries from that period and 
once wrote a thesis about it right here in Boston. And no one had a sense. You were fine. And a week later, you were gone. And of course, that epidemic struck young people disproportionately, somewhat different than the coronavirus, which seems to strike older people disproportionately, although in both cases, there were many people of all ages um, who, who were felled. So in that sense, this is not a unique occurrence. And my sense in this Passover is that in a four times when people spoke of plague, they knew exactly what the Egyptians had experienced because they too had experienced plague. And in fact, once upon a time, lots of prayer books actually had a prayer to say at a time of plague, an indication of how common the experience was. And uh, let it be said that I think it was known, number one, that the wealthy had the opportunity to leave town when there was a plague. They uh, knew, uh, they may not have known the term social distancing, but they knew that if you ran away from the city, your chances of surviving were much better. The poor, of course, did not have that opportunity. And similarly, they knew that plagues often tested leaders, rabbis who uh, stayed and dealt with the problems of the time, risking their own lives to do so, were remembered years later. For example, um, maybe the very first. Uh, uh, rabbi called himself the minister of Sheriff Israel, Gershom Sation, was remembered for the service that he did not just for Jews, but for the entire New York community in the very late 18th century at the time uh, of a play. And that was, was common. So in that sense, yes, history rhymes. It's interesting as you talk about how much more common plagues and epidemics were back then. I'm, I'm reminded, not necessarily from a historical perspective, but from a spiritual perspective, that we are being brought back to a kind of almost primal uh, human vulnerability that we sometimes think we're, we're immune to in today's modern world. And that part of this moment is both the kind of democratizing sense of this, of this pandemic in that it's hitting everywhere, but also the kind of humbling feeling that we cannot predict, we don't know what's going to happen, and it kind of no one feels, no one feels safe from it. Just to take us back to the historical context for a second, could you share a little bit about when you think about the social, economic, kind of political implications of, of, of plagues in years past, whether there are any kind of themes that you think also may, may repeat themselves during moments like this. You did allude to kind of a gap, socioeconomic gaps being exacerbated, a call on leadership, but any other themes that you think are sure. relevant for us? Well, one of the reasons the plagues are so um, 
so much less common today than in the 19th century, was that after the fact, uh, people studied them. So, for example, uh, it was discovered cholera is related to the water supply. And consequently, uh, the Croton Reservoir and, and many of our reservoirs, even here in the Boston area, with the great concern for pure water, they were efforts to make sure that we did not suffer from cholera and, and that we protected the water supply. My favorite example, really, yellow fever, Memphis is the place where we we remember how hard Memphis was hit in yellow fever. Anyone who goes to the Jewish cemetery in Memphis will see that. And the they, uh, Memphis, we can really see what happened. Uh, they didn't know what was yellow fever, but the wealthy uh, white planters around Memphis, after the slaves were freed, they wouldn't invest a nickel in hygiene, sanitation. They said, well, we had to free the slaves. That should be good enough for them. As a consequence, there were plenty uh, of, of uh, sanitation for the mosquitoes who carried the yellow fever to feed on. Well, of course, the mosquitoes didn't get the memo that it was only supposed to be for ex-slaves. They buzzed everywhere. And the traditional view of Memphis was a third of the population succumbed. Uh, a third ran away, and a third had uh, immunity somehow from the plague. Had it not been for the discovery of the cause of yellow fever and, and subsequently a vaccine, I doubt Memphis would exist. And even today, Memphis is a community where East Europeans are central because the earlier Jewish community had left or died. But the important point is it changed behavior. Memphis built a sanitation system. Uh, so they figured out what caused the plague. Obviously, flu is being airborne is somewhat different, although I certainly think that after this epidemic is done, there will be a blue ribbon panel and it will make many recommendations, and clearly lots of shortcomings uh, in terms of testing, in terms of uh, how the different states are competing with one another, uh, in terms of um, uh, how we might do things better. All of those shortcomings will be studied after the fact, Everyone obviously always has 2020 hindsight, and we will hopefully learn for next time. So that's one of the things that has happened. There certainly are other kinds of theories of how plagues have um, sometimes strengthened 
centralized leadership, um, uh, certainly uh, to take Boston, it wasn't just plague, but, but immigration and then the great Chelsea fire and so on demonstrated the value of a centralized community uh, that could make decisions and where people could help one another. And I, I, I certainly think that that will come out of, uh, of, of this uh, experience as well. At the same time, what is very striking, especially after 1918, was the desire for what uh, in 1920 uh, President Harding called normalcy. And the, you've had World War I, you've had uh, a flu epidemic that actually killed more people than World War I, and all people want is to return to the way things were before. Uh, and I tend to think that the desire for normalcy or a return to what had been before will be a, a kind of short-term uh, response uh, in in this case as well, although one hopes that some lessons will nevertheless be learned. And I think those of us who are, who are sitting in seats right now thinking not only about the acute crisis we're trying to address, but also thinking about the future and even uh, trying to think about what it means to plan for this future or wrestling with uh, many unknowns, one of which is the degree to which people will want to return to normalcy and will simply pour back out into community or kind of stay away and keep their distance. And obviously, as a Jewish community that is built around, to a large degree, still in-person connection, this raises many questions for many of our organizations in our communities. And I think you're also alluding to the question with which we will need to wrestle, which is which aspects of before would we like to return to? And which aspects of before is this a moment, you know, from which we need to move forward and potentially evolve? And what are the, the models that uh, maybe even have been needed to be broken for a long time? And this is a, this is a moment that's going to force us to, to think about that. You mentioned leadership earlier. Let me ask you, before we get specifically to the Jewish community, leadership during times like this, a time of crisis, are there one or two examples, maybe one that we could learn from, uh, either positive and or negative, when you look back at history of how leaders have responded in moments like this? Uh, what's really quite fascinating, even if you go back and read community histories, uh, which are a huge genre in American Jewish history, Rabbis. I mentioned Memphis. The rabbi of Memphis, his name was Samfield, Rabbi Max Samfield, is remembered for what he did at the time of, of, of the play and how he went uh, from place to place, seemingly not even concerned with his own health. Now, it must be that he somehow had acquired or, or acquired in the midst of it immunity. But years later, people remembered he was tried at this moment and he succeeded tragically, which is also still in the history books. His son died in at that time. There are other, I won't mention the rabbis, but there are other rabbis 
who were sort of the first to run away at the time of a plague. And many of them were no longer needed. This is a moment that of trial for leaders, I would say, as we move from the Jewish to the general community, we're watching, even on television, how do different leaders respond? And uh, certainly there are leaders whom people watch almost every night and who are doing a remarkable job and other leaders, not so much. And I, I think these kinds of trials very much uh, test communal leaders. I, I think people are looking for understanding. I don't think they're always looking for easy answers if one looks back to Winston Churchill, admittedly, that wasn't a plague, that was the blitz. You know, he called on the population and inspired them without in any way minimalizing the threat that they already knew, but he was somehow able to articulate their feelings to bring out what Lincoln would call the better angels of their nature, and and they look to him as a great leader. And honestly, it was clear for anyone who watched The Queen recently that she was still thinking back. She still remembers her first prime minister was Winston Churchill, and uh, she was thinking back to what he had done, and she clearly was trying to do that as well. And, and I think that is, in some ways, what is expected of, of leaders at, at moments such, such as this. And then when it's all over, yes, there will be a time to, to take stock and uh, to ask some of the, the questions that, that, that you've asked. Obviously, you know, I think we all realize that Zoom is going to play a much greater role in our lives than it has before, and that's going to have an impact. I, I told my own children that uh, they will be the last generation that will know what a snow day is. I don't think we'll have any more snow days. There'll be Zoom days. But what some of the larger changes will be, that, I think, is, is much harder for any of us to anticipate. I just love your Churchill example, because one of the things I've been thinking about myself is that this moment calls upon leaders, and not just leaders in terms of people in positions of authority, but anyone who is striving to move things forward. And, you know, I think today with people living at home with their families, let's remember every parent is a leader, you know, of their own small tribe and trying to help people just make it through one day at a time. But that holding that kind of beautiful balance of both kind of empathy and we are in it with you and I can reflect back to you what it is that you're feeling in a way that gives you a sense that, that I'm in touch with you while also holding up some sense of hope and possibility of a brighter future without seeming out of touch 
is a, is a delicate balance, and I think it's a, it's a great example to point to. Before we get to today, can we talk about the kinds of changes that have happened in Jewish communities, maybe thinking about Jewish infrastructure? You alluded to the uh, centralization and the kind of the, the reminder at moments like this that there is a need for a collective. Sometimes we can, um, we can forget that or think we've moved beyond that, but these are moments that sometimes remind us of the power of, of a centralized organization that can kind of think about the greater whole. But if we look back at history, where has the Jewish community made decisions in moments of crisis that you think have actually, let's say, turned out well for the Jewish community or potentially had negative consequences for the Jewish community? Yeah, and I, I'm impressed by some of the small changes. So, for example, um, at the time of uh, the play, one of the plagues in um, the late 18th century, there were many dead. And naturally, after the plague ended, everybody vied over who will say cottage. Because in Lithuania at that time, it was the custom that only one person said the mourner's cottage had a service, and that represented all of the dead. And the great Rabbi Akiba Eger, one of the giants of that time, he said, for this emergency, we will allow many people to say Kaddish in unison. Now, naturally, he said, of course, that's only for this period. We don't change practice and customs. But as everybody knows, that today is the widespread custom. And it's an example of a practice that began in extremis and continued. And this particularly came to mind when I read the rabbis who made rulings just for this particular Passover and tried to tell us that it only applied to this Passover. I have a sense that some of those rulings will will last beyond uh, just past this Passover. Um, so that's um, uh, really you know, an example of changes brought about in extremists that seem to succeed. People like them, and, and they would, and they would continue. You know, I'm I'm not sure I can think of negative lessons. I certainly can think of mistakes in really in the 19th century. It was understood quite wrongly that plagues were caused by what they called miasma. Uh, these were a kind of bad winds and spirits that came from the deceased and spread over the community. And so the idea was, well, we'd better move our cemeteries far out of the city so uh, those miasmas won't strike us. And in community after community, to this very day, Jewish and non-Jewish cemeteries are often far outside the city. Many rabbis know, oh, someone dies, half a day is going to be spent getting to and from the cemetery, and they don't think to themselves, oh, that was all based on a mistake. 
take the notion of where various plagues came from and how we could prevent them, but we still somehow uh, have these cemeteries at a great distance from town. So not every conclusion will turn out to be correct. Hopefully, uh, today's scientists will, will do a better job of teaching us uh, what to do. A good reminder that actually science and knowledge and understanding the realities we're faced with really do have significant implications for the decisions we make. In that case, mostly about convenience. I love your Rebbe Akiva Eger story because that's a case of like democratizing Kaddish and at a time when we think a lot about what it means to open up Jewish life, bring more people in, people who are on the periphery, people who cannot or just are not accessing Jewish life. I think one of the questions we're going to be asking ourselves is, are there ways we're doing things differently now that significantly open up the doors and the windows of Jewish life uh, and Jewish community for people? I, I want to ask you about priorities and communal priorities, because obviously moments of scarce resources and difficult times, and here we're talking not just about the medical side um, of a plague, but about the economic implications of that plague. And we still obviously do not yet know how serious, severe the implications of this will be and how long they will last. But obviously Jewish communities need to make hard choices about priorities and prioritization during times um, um, of economic hardship. Can you talk a little bit about any any learnings from history about the choices Jewish communities have made about what to prioritize and what the implications of those choices have been? I do think that when one looks at some of the decisions that rabbis and often people did turn to rabbis at those moments, some of the decisions that rabbis were making, uh, they were, in a sense, prioritizing what you should do under certain difficult circumstances. Um, so, uh, and, and, and sometimes, interestingly, today, we are actually making different decisions than they would have made. So in an earlier day, you do find people talking about how can we keep the minion, the, the, the prayer quorum of 10 men going? How can we keep up the minion? Clearly, at such a grievous time, we need to continue to pray to God. Uh, one of the striking features today has been an understanding that notwithstanding the importance of uh, a prayer in community at this time, we, we need to separate ourselves from everybody. And it's quite fascinating, and I think we'll be remembered, that leading rabbis, that at this time, Notwithstanding our normal practice, you don't have Seder with 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 anybody but your immediate family who you live with. You don't go to the synagogue, uh, even at times uh, when we normally would, and so on. In an earlier day, some of those priorities were different, I think, perhaps because they did not understand as we do what it takes to mitigate a plague. But I do think that some of those decisions 
are being made? How do you prioritize Jewish education versus the need to save lives and and so on? And and those questions naturally came up uh, in earlier times, and they have come up in our own day. I think the priority of saving lives has has been central. And since we know a lot more today about how to save lives than even they did in 1918, we're seeing all sorts of decisions based upon what Jews call pikuach nefesh. We've got to put the saving of lives above everything else. And that has led to some, I think, remarkable decisions, I think, that some rabbis never expected to have to make. But when the alternatives were posed to them, suddenly they did make those decisions, which meant closing the synagogue and not having Yisker and and moving a lot of things to the realm of the virtual. And of course, we know that in the end, you know, we we will only know in hindsight whether the the value conflicts that we resolved in this moment, we resolved them for the for the best or not. But to a large degree, what leadership is all about in a moment like this is deciding which values trump in moments of, of right. you know, kind of almost unresolvable value conflicts. I think we will know. The more people say you exaggerated the danger. Not nearly as many people died as you warned. Then smart leaders will say to themselves, ah, we succeeded. Far fewer people died than was expected instead of uh, the the 675,000 that perished in 1918. And three times that many would have perished if we did nothing. We've kept the numbers down. And it's crucial, I think, for leaders to know that when folks say you exaggerated, that's when we know, ah, we saved lives. We succeeded. Uh, Maybe on that note, we should open it up to uh, uh, to folks who have questions. We've got a couple of questions. Uh-oh. Yes, we have a couple of questions, which is, can you hear me? One of yeah, something you mentioned earlier, which is Jewish education. Let, let me start with the Jewish education question from David uh, in Boston, who noted that when you, Professor Sarner, teach about the Great Depression, you've commented that to save money, the Jewish community closed many of their boards of Jewish education. And this this listener is wondering whether you are seeing, as we prepare for a financial crisis and synagogues are going kind of virtual, whether you're seeing or anticipating any decisions by the Jewish community that might make sense in the short term, but could create problems in the long term. So let me just give the context there. That has more to do with the Great Depression than plague, but in the Great Depression, uh, it is absolutely the case that People needed money. The Jewish community was a lot poorer. And the first thing that they did uh, was stop paying Jewish education on the theory, I'd rather feed my family. You know, Jewish education is important, but 
keeping my kids alive is even more important. But the result of that was that the community of the 1930s was actually our most ignorant generation. Those that grew up, you only have a few years to educate people. If they don't get a Jewish education, you see that kind of move decade by decade. And the generation of the 30s uh, pulled out of their supplementary schools, never made up what they had lost. And uh, our colleague, Professor Jonathan Krasner, has shown with a lot of numbers how in city after city, the numbers of Jews attending school really collapsed in the 30s, and many schools collapsed as well. And, and actually, one of the amazing things that happened in Boston in 2008 was that the combined Jewish philanthropies voted, well, we're not going to make that mistake. Uh, we are going to keep the schools open. We're going to keep them going. Uh, and that's an example of learning from past mistakes. Um, I think we are seeing um, uh, that um, some Jewish startups are in dire straits. Lots of Jewish community centers deeply concerned. Can we survive? And Jewish newspapers are closing. England's closed the Jewish Chronicle without hardly any attention being paid to it. The London Jewish Chronicle, the oldest Jewish newspaper in the world, ceased operations. The Canadian Jewish News, the most important Jewish newspaper north of the border, similarly announced that it was closing. What does it mean when we no longer have uh, a Jewish newspaper to unite us as a community. What will be the implication of that happening? And, and I, I think it will be very important to think about those kinds of priorities if the economic downturn uh, really perseveres. We're going to have to make difficult choices, and one hopes that those choices will be made by people who think hard. Can we live without these institutions? At the same time, uh, we know we know it here in Boston. When times are tough, sure, there are going to be institutions that go out of business. 2008, even as we protected Jewish education, the Bureau of Jewish Education, created in a different era, when Jewish education was organized communally rather than by synagogue, the Bureau of Jewish Education did not survive uh, that, at that moment. So as we look around and we see uh, Jewish newspapers, we see Jewish community centers, we, we see um, a Jewish startups, we're going to have to decide, well, what are we going to protect? And what are we going to say, you know, we can't protect it. It's outlived its day. 
And it seems to me that seems to me that one of the things I think is going to be critical is not only focusing on what we are protecting in terms of institutions, but what matters most in terms of the quality and character of our community. So even if the the form that some of these functions take now can no longer make it, it's going to be critical that we affirm core values. So if if uh, if we lose a school or we lose something like that. Are we going to come out of this as a more educated Jewish community a generation from now, but just in different ways? Or are we going to you know, miss the boat and undervalue education for an entire generation? Those are some of the questions we're going to have to ask ourselves. And I think that will determine whether the changes we undergo are ultimately for the good or actually are ultimately blind spots um, of our generation in terms of the choices we make right now. We've got um, one or two other questions that I want to get to before we wrap up in a few minutes. So this one is from Samantha. Who, who writes, I'm reading about pandemics and plagues hitting hardest among the poor as well as minority populations. She says, CJP is doing amazing work right now. Thank you, Samantha. Is there a long history of Jews helping other minority populations at a time like this? Or do we typically stay more insular and kind of focus on taking care of our own right now? So I think Samantha um, is, first of all, understanding that people um, at, at hard times and at times of plague and in times of downturn, then they discover, oh, I'm part of a Jewish community. It cares about me. I Now I get it. And I think some of that is very clear. It, it was really remarkable that we gave Seder in a box to so many people, and I understand that that idea, like many other ideas historically, kind of moved from Boston across the country. The the uh, but she's then asking another question, which is really the social justice question. Maybe we know that your own poor take precedent, but aren't we caring about the? poor of the community. And uh, CJP historically has used these opportunities also to uh, make clear it's not an either or, it's both. We care about our own poor. We care about the poor of the Boston community. And, you know, plagues show us how much we have in common. Uh, with our neighbors, uh, they don't ask the question of who is a Jew. And I, I, I think that absolutely the downturn coupled with uh, the coronavirus is forcing us uh, to look at the poor of the community. And it's important, even as we sit in our home, to realize that many uh, of those listening uh, can sit in their homes and look around and yeah, they're all alone. But there are plenty of people in Boston when they sit at home, there are many around them in very, very, very close quarters and their experiencing of social distancing is utterly different from the experience of those fortunate enough to, to own their own homes. I do think we have to remember and think about that. And uh, clearly, uh, there are now charities being created that we will all want to support within our larger community. 
I really love the way you said it's not an either or, and it's one of the things that makes me most proud of CJP and our Jewish community, which really sees it as a as a both and. We need to be a community that focuses on taking care of our own, but that very much feels ourselves engaged with the broader society of which we're a part. One of the first things CJP did was make a make small grants to the emergency funds of the United Way and the Boston Foundation just as a way to make clear that the Jewish community feels a part of civic Boston and feels committed to the, again, both taking care of the Jewish community, but being part of of the broader collective. I'm going to ask you two more questions, one of which is big and the other one of which is, I think, a nice way to end. Rachel asked if you could say a few words about the rise of anti-Semitism during times like this, during plagues and how that may be relevant to now and and the potential of, or what we're already seeing in terms of the resurgence of anti-Semitism. So um, certainly and, and, and infamously at the time of the Black Death, which was so little understood, this was a terrible time for Jews. It was very easy uh, to blame it uh, on the Jewish community and Scapegoating, I think, does historically emerge. Uh, at these times, it's, uh, one is looking, can't we blame uh, somebody? And clearly, some of that is going on. Anybody who has, as I do, some Asian students will hear horrific stories about how people turn to them as if they were responsible somehow, and they bore all of the anger of the time in a way that they did not expect. And we are similarly seeing very unfortunate cases of anti-Semitism, especially we've seen it in Huntsville, Alabama. We've seen it in areas of New York, where the Haredi population is not only confronting totally disproportionate number of deaths and illnesses, partly because social distancing is the antithesis of what Orthodox Judaism is about. We're all about getting together with our fellow Jews, so not surprising that um, they've suffered disproportionately and uh, tragically the holiday of Purim played a role there. Uh, So we are seeing anti-Semitism. Honestly, the anti-Semites knew the Jews were responsible for the coronavirus even before the coronavirus existed because Jews are always responsible in their mind. And uh, then they look for evidence to support it. And, And the haters who are always looking to blame an outsider, whether it's um, Asians or Jews or some other outsider, uh, they always can use uh, this opportunity to prove it. And uh, tragically, we are seeing it. It's not new. uh, And um, uh, it's something we need to call out. And it reminds us that, yeah, in the eyes of some Americans, even Jews who have been here for generations are somehow still outsiders. And there's nothing we can do about it, but we should know it. 
And this, of course, is a, a good reminder that we are working really hard as a community right now, sadly, both on educating ourselves about anti-Semitism and on keeping our buildings and our institutions and our communities secure, giving out more security grants, especially during a time when people aren't in their buildings, to make sure that we can do the kind of basic work uh, to keep ourselves as safe and secure as possible. And it's also a good reminder that we've got a month of different kinds of holidays and commemorations coming up, including Yom HaShoah. And it's a good time to both commemorate and learn from that tragic history also. So we never forget and, and we learn from history. Thank you so much for that question, Rachel. Okay, we're going to end on, on a positive question, of Professor Sarna, which was asked in two different ways, but I'm going to combine them. Penny said, are there any specific incidents or responses from a particular leader or, or just in day-to-day life right now in the Jewish community that when you look back on this decades from now and tell this story, might be your lead anecdote about this period. And then another uh, listener just asked, what gives you hope right now? And I'll combine those into one and ask you to kind of wrap us up on a note of something we're seeing that gives you hope. So I think that when it's looked at and when we look back at this time and people um, look at it within the context of so many other plagues, the the way we managed to make meaningful Passover, notwithstanding social distancing rules and closed synagogues, that was remarkable. And um, we managed to do it for Jewish single people who feared, I'm all alone, I'm at home. And we said, no, you're not all alone. We're with you. And we demonstrated that. We demonstrated it in Zoom. We demonstrated it in Seder in a box. But the people who might have been neglected discovered they're not neglected. Uh, We remember them. We care about them. And I think that when we look at what synagogues have been doing and what our Jewish schools have done, shifting in a very short time and without a lot of preparation to online activities, um, you know, that's remarkable. Uh, my own synagogue this morning sent around uh, a notice about a virtual Yisker. Well, it's not like someone looked in the sacred text. What do we do? We can't join together a Yisker. Oh, virtual Yisker. No, there's never been a virtual Yisker. And yet they drew from a Yisker tradition and realized that, yes, people want to remember departed, especially this year, and they combine the sacred tradition with the new technology and came up with what I'm sure will be called a new tradition of a virtual yitzka. My My congregation is by no means unique in organizing it, but we need to realize that, uh, you know, uh, this was an innovation 
at the last minute. And anybody who has participated in one of these, whether it's a virtual shiver or a virtual funeral, things we never heard of until now, I think is astonished at how meaningful they have been and realizes that our rabbinic leaders have met the challenge of the hour, just as Rabbi Akiva Aker did in his day, and somehow were able to combine the old and the new to realize that people sitting at home have spiritual needs and met those needs. And these are not just spiritual needs, but those who felt healthier, who were more able to move around, who are younger, providing food for those who are inside. These are the moments when the community, I think, has risen to the challenge. And that, I hope, is what will be remembered in the annals of history. What an, uh, a beautiful way to end, to, to have uh, the historian talking about how innovation is actually allowing us to remember in new ways. And I hope that uh, what you say will be the way that we are remembered right now. The story they will tell about this moment is that we were a community that let no one fall through the cracks, that let everyone know we see you, we have your back. And that even though we're socially distancing, nothing could keep us apart from one another and from the meaning and purpose that the Jewish tradition can provide us. So thank you so much, Professor Sarna, for being being here today and for this really meaningful conversation. And I hope we'll be able to get together in person before too many weeks are passed. <laughs> Amen. Well, thank you, Dr. Sarna and Rabbi Baker, for this fascinating conversation. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. You can find this conversation at jewishboston.com slash podcast in the coming days. And in the meantime, everyone, stay safe and be well. Thank you.